The message that I have this morning is a message that I've been... One of the things when, you, when you're the one preaching is you wrestling with the text all week long. And I've been wrestling with this text all week long in, in my spirit and in my deeds and thoughts. And uh, what, I, what I have, what God has spoken to my heart this week, and I hope that he speaks to yours this morning, is absolutely impossible. Um, and because of that, we can wind up, we can land in one of two places. One, we can land in, like, pity and discouragement and just feeling sorry for ourselves. Just, you know, just this whiny, pouty sort of thing. Or we can throw ourselves on the mercy of God and get excited about the beauty of his grace and the beauty of who he is. Um, so I pray that we would land on, on that side instead of the legalistic side. Uh, so it's this, this is a really important statement that Paul is going to make that we're going to read about that Christ actually made as he came to this earth. Um, in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. But I want to read for you a, a quote before we get there. C.S. Lewis says, If the incarnation, and we use that word a lot. Let me just say it's God in the flesh, God becoming flesh. That's when we, when we say incarnation. If the incarnation was in fact real, if Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became man, then it can only be the centerpiece of all history. And more than that, it can only be the centerpiece of, of why we gather, of why we take breaths, of why we engage people. It can only be the centerpiece of everything for all eternity. So it's just, this is vitally important for us to get this concept of the incarnation. And this morning, we're not going to be talking so much about mangers and stables and babies and Bethlehem and stars and angels. We're going to talk about God in the flesh. And it's Christmas time, and we think about that, and we sing songs. We just sang a song Word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. And I don't want us to be so memorizing of a lyric to a song to forget what it is that we just... God became flesh. That's a really big thing. Especially when we look at 2 Corinthians 8-9. Let's read this simple verse. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. This is the incarnation. This verse is the incarnation. And we're going to look at this 
phrase by phrase this morning. One simple verse, deeply looking at it phrase by phrase. A little bit of context work here. This is Paul talking to a church in Corinth about giving. And he concludes his discussion about giving and generosity to this Corinthian people with this verse. So he's, you know, you really need to give and you really need to give of yourself, not just of your money, but just give of of everything that you are because this is what Christ did for you in the incarnation. That's the the context with which this verse appears. So let's, let's take this thing verse by verse. And and what I'm going to call us to, what I feel like God is calling me to, and then what I want to call us to as a church is to follow the example of Christ. And that's what I mean that it, when, it, when it's impossible. Because while you might get there indeed, eventually you're going to get there kicking and screaming and you don't want to go there. But we're going to see in a second how vitally important it is. So the, the first phrase here. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, there's a piece of grace. When, when we hear grace, when, when you're in a church context, church conversation, when you hear this word grace, our, our immediate response, my immediate response, is, is about 10% of what this word actually means. This is a, a deep word that's pregnant with meaning and beauty that we miss because we dismiss it, because we think we know what grace means. There's no bigger idiot than somebody who thinks they know what's going on but really misses what's happening. When we come to Scripture at any time and think we, we got this one figured out, we need, to, we need to check ourselves and come back to Scripture. Let's, let's think about what grace really means. We, when I think of grace in a church context, my mind goes to amazing grace. that saved a wretch like me. And so grace kind of stops for me a lot of times with, I'm awful, he's great, he's given me something I don't deserve. Okay, let's get on to the next statement, the next phrase. But there's, there's, it's, it's much, much more than that. The word, the Greek word, is a Greek word named called karos. That which affords joy, pleasure, delight, sweetness, charm, and loveliness. I want you to decide where we're, learn, we're studying this word karos. Not, we're not studying the word grace. We're studying the word karos. And think about what jumps into your mind when you think about joy? What jumps into your mind when you think about pleasure? In this context, pleasure oftentimes is, is something that, that we want to kind of back away from. Because it might be dirty, it might be sexual. But pleasure, just raw happiness, delight, delight, sweetness. Think of yesterday, everybody was gone from a house, but 
me and Mia, and we, we sat down in a little chair, and she curled up in my arm, under my arm, and we watched some silly show on, on the computer. And, and I didn't watch hardly any of it. I just breathed in deep the sweetness of that moment. That which affords sweetness, that which affords charm and loveliness. Spending time here because I really want us to connect with, with what grace really means. It's not just you getting something that you don't deserve. It's, it's this perfection of, of the aroma of all of these flowers that joy, pleasure, delight, sweetness, charm, loveliness, the aroma that those things exude as we breathe them in. That is grace. That is, is what Christ intends to give to you with the incarnation. Let me paint this picture. Uh, Eric and Mickey aren't here this morning. I think they're in Columbia. Uh, Eric is a guy in our church who just got uh, engaged last week. And several days before, before he's going to get engaged, he's talking to, to Jen and I about you know, his plans and here's what we're going to do, here's what's happening. And what he did was he thought really, really hard about... Where could I propose to her? How could I propose to her? How can I get a surprise? Because they both knew it was coming. How can I make it into a surprise? And how can I shower upon her, lavish upon her, not just gifts, but expression of, of how much I love her? And, and it consumed him for weeks to, to figure this out. And, and what he was going to spend on that didn't, didn't matter. Because he wanted to convince her. He wanted to present her with the aroma of joy, pleasure, delight, sweetness, charm, loveliness. And when we think about that, when, when you think about an earthly sort of spousal, girlfriend, fiance, love, and, and how the purity of that within your soul motivates you to provide for another. That is at the heart of grace. So grace is really, that, was, that, was, that is within Christ that welled up and motivated activity to bring to you joy, pleasure, delight, sweetness, charm. Loveliness. That which was in Christ motivated and bubbled up and welled up so that he could give to us this beautiful gift, which happens to be something that we don't deserve. That's where our definition of grace is. is when we see amazing grace, amazing grace is we don't deserve it, yeah, but what is it that we don't deserve? This beautiful, perfect, abiding relationship with a perfect and holy God. And how did we get it? It's the grace within Christ that welled up, that caused him to come to this earth. So that brings us to the next statement. 
though he was rich. Grace motivates this, that though he was rich. John Gill, commentator, says this, the perfections of his divine nature, such as eternity, immutability, infinity, omnipresence, omniscience, omnipotence, which reach to everything that is made. Those things reach to the heavens, to the earth, to the sea, and all that is in them. And in those large revenues of glory, which are due to him from them all. That's a really smart way to say that forever and ever and ever, all knowledge, all power, all authority, immutability is a great word that we don't use much. Immutability is whatever he wants to accomplish, he's going to accomplish. That's always existed within Christ. Infinity, omnipresence, omniscience, omnipotence, everything, all of these things have always existed within Christ. Seated at the right hand of the holy God. Where day and night, all the time, forever and always, for all eternity past. And let me, I I use that phrase a lot, all eternity past. We can think about what happened last Christmas, and it's a historical thing for us, but, but it stops all eternity past. It, there's not a time where that began. Right? You, you follow that? There's not a time where eternity past began. Like, there isn't, there's no time before eternity past. And so for all eternity past, Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father receiving praise and glory and honor all the time. This is when we say, when Paul says, though he was rich, this is what he's talking about. Omniscience, omnipresence, immutability, infinity. Receiving praise and glory. We, we talk, we, the whole series on first Peter that we just got out of is, is really rooted in the first few verses where he's talking about we have an inheritance that can't perish, spoil, or fade. We're talking about hope all throughout the course of that and that, you know, endure through this difficult life for what lies ahead of you. Christ had that, experienced that, held that, that beautiful inheritance that's, that, that always had been for him. Yet, because of the grace that was within him that boiled over into a gift to give to you an unworthy person to bring you this joy, this delight, this charm, this loveliness. Though he was rich, though he received all of these things, Everything was his. Everything was held together by him. 
though he was rich, and he was motivated by the grace that was a part of who he was, he became poor. Yet for your sake, this graceful Christ, who was perfectly rich for all eternity past, became poor. John Gill says this, By assuming human nature, with all its weaknesses and imperfections, accepting sin, he appeared in it not as Lord, but in the form of a servant. He endured in it a great deal of reproach and shame, and at last, death itself. This is beautiful on its face, but when we see the fact that he was this voluntarily after being rich and the sacrifice that is there, it motivates worship. Dave read as he lit the incarnation candle the Phillips translation of Philippians 2, 6-8. I want to read it again. It's beautiful. He who had always been God by nature, did not cling to his prerogatives as God's equal. I want to stop just for a second. Did not cling to his prerogatives as God's equal. And here's where, at the beginning of the message, I'm talking about how I've been wrestling with this text all week and it's impossible and This is where the mighty, holy hand of God can bring down a fist upon us and leave us broken and pouty. Or we can respond and say, thank you for the grace and mercy that you've given to us. Because Man, look, he who had always been God by nature did not cling to prerogatives as God's equal. How many times do we want to hold on white-knuckled to what we think we're owed? When people around us don't live up to the expectations that we have to them or, or the expectations that are due us. Somebody owes you something and they don't give it to you? Do you get angry and frustrated? Maybe it's when we think of, oh, our minds always go to the physical. They owe me money. They owe me this. They owe me a a lunch. They owe me whatever. What about respect? Does somebody owe you respect that they don't give to you? And does that make you angry? Probably yes. Let's be honest. But Christ in the incarnation was perfectly rich in every way and came to this earth not clinging to his prerogatives, to his right as God. 
But instead, he stripped himself of all privilege. I don't care what is due to me. There's something more important than that. There's something more important in play than what I think you ought to give to me. Do you hear that? This is the the spirit of Christmas. It's not family and hearths and a warm fireplace and gifts. The heart of Christmas is Christ's ultimate beautiful sacrifice. Stripping himself of all privilege by consenting to be a slave. Consent, I love that phrase. He consented to be a slave. Yes. And being born as a mortal man. And having become man, he humbled himself. By living life of utter obedience. When I think of humble himself, the most humiliating thing that ever happened to me in my entire life, when I was a sophomore in high school, I got hit by a car and tore some, really tore up some ligaments in my ankle. Might have heard this story before. But I'm, I'm on crutches. And the crutches, the only crutches that the, that the doctor had were these wooden crutches with no rubber tips on them. McClure High School was covered in tile, including the stairs. And I've got these wooden crutches, and I'm one-legged, and I got like an arm full of books, and I'm starting to lose it. And I lost it, and I fell down the stairs. And not just fell down the stairs, as I fell, I like was, I flung a crutch that way, and I dropped the crutch, and it, you ever been uh, skiing? And you lose a, a, a ski, and it just, like, finds its way to point down the mountain. It just slides around. Down. That was my crutch. So there's, like, one up at the top of the stairs and one at the bottom of the stairs. And I'm, like, head pointing down the stairs and feet pointing up the stairs. There's nothing worse, really, right, in high school than to fall down, to trip, even if it's just for a half a moment. But here I am, crutches everywhere and feet pointing up and head pointing down, disgustingly humiliating. And that's disgustingly humiliating because I am, I look like an idiot. And everyone is looking down upon me. I am humbled. And here's Christ, humiliated. We think of humiliated in that context, somebody laughing at somebody because something bad's happening to them. But realistically, it's just placing yourself below. Here's Christ, though he was rich, becoming poor, humbling himself, humiliating himself. No longer do I sit in the presence of holy God, receiving praise, glory, and honor that I've been receiving for all eternity past. But instead, I come humiliating myself for your sake. Having become a man, he humbled himself. By living a life of utter obedience, even to the extent of dying, yes, God, I'll be obedient. Oh, wait, not if it means not getting to 
do what I want. Not if it means having to actually sacrifice something. Christ humbled himself, and the call for you is to humble yourself in all circumstances, in every way. And this is absurd. We, you can't, here's where it, it, you can't. You can't, you won't. And if you do, you're probably going to go kicking and screaming as I've gone all week long. I don't want to. I want to please myself. I want to gain charm, loveliness, joy, pleasure, delight. I want, I want to grab those things. He was rich. He was motivated by the grace that was a part of who he is to become poor so that you could be rich. So that by his poverty, we might become rich. All of the things that grace affords, all of the things that will be yours in heaven, the inheritance that can't perish can't spoil, can't fade, is kept in heaven for you. Unbroken relationships, intimacy with the Father, naked and unashamed before God and before man. Realized purpose. Unhindered joy, purity of mind, body and spirit. Perfect connection with God and Jesus. All yours through the Incarnation. All yours through the incarnation. Though he was rich, became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. So, what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Though he was rich, became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. What does that do to It's a beautiful notion. It's a beautiful idea, a concept that brings us to a place of worship. But, but what does that do? We model it. We engage it. We lead people to Christ in it. J.I. Packer, in a contemporary classic knowing God says for the Christmas spirit is the spirit of those who like their master live their whole lives on the principle of making themselves poor spending and being spent to enrich their fellow humans giving time trouble care and concern to do good to others That is the Christmas spirit. Packer continues, we talk glibly of the Christmas spirit, rarely meaning more by this than sentimental jollity on a family basis. We're going to gather at 4 o'clock next Saturday for a Christmas Eve service and it's going to be sweet and we're going to light candles and we're going to hug people and then we're going to leave and I'm going to go to my parents' house and we're going to sit around and have a 
the dinner that we've had for 20 years that I can remember and open gifts and it'll be sweet and I'll get to watch my kids open gifts and, and we'll call that the Christmas spirit. We're going to gather in people's living rooms and have parties and drink peppermint hot chocolates and or mochas or coffees or whatever you guys drink. We're going to gather around and we're going to turn the radio on 102.5 and listen to Christmas music and we're going to call that the Christmas spirit. It's a family gathering of sweetness and gentleness and the, the spirit, but the reality of the Christmas spirit is the second sentence here. But what we have said makes it clear that the phrase should in fact, the Christmas spirit, the phrase should in fact carry a tremendous weight of meaning. It ought to mean reproducing in human lives of the temper of him who for our sakes became poor at the first Christmas. And the Christmas spirit itself ought to be the mark of every Christian year round. Man, that's, do you see the weight and beauty of, of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 exploding into the phrase of what he's saying here? It ought to mean reproducing in human lives the temper of him, Christ, who for our sake became poor at the first Christmas. And that is the heart of what God has been pressing and pouring into my life this week and what I'm begging of God to continue to do so and to pour into our lives is that though he was rich, became poor so that our poverty, you might become rich. This is the Christmas spirit. This is what God is calling us to all the time. This is what it means to be a disciple of Christ. This is why we're here. Not just in this church. This is why you're here on this planet taking a breath to model this, to invest it, to pour it into lives. If I said to you, who are you modeling this to? Does somebody jump in your mind immediately? Who's watching your life? Who's watching you become poor so that they might become rich? Who is it? Somebody in your mind. Is it? This is what God is calling us all to. This is the spirit of Christ. I want to leave you with this simple thought. The plan of God for all eternity past is to produce the incarnation of himself in you. The plan of God for all eternity past is is to produce the incarnation in you. So that you 
might reproduce that in others. Here is your directive. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Let's pray. God, I... I ask of you now to come and dwell among us and change our hearts, God. Teach us what it looks like, what it means to to sacrifice. What it means to humiliate ourselves. To consent to humiliation. To serve as Christ served. God, connect our spirit with this incarnation of your son that though he was rich in ways that we can't even fathom, we can't even define, became poor in ways that we can't define so that we might become rich. God, would you produce that incarnation in us? Please, God, and a willingness, Father. God, we throw ourselves onto your mercy. Change our hearts. Break us if you have to. In Christ's perfect and wonderful name. Amen.